It's Josh. We talk a lot about entertainment on this show, as well as the labor forces that make it happen. And right now, Hollywood is staring down the barrel of a major labor action. At the time I'm recording this voiceover, there's about six and a half hours left for America's television and movie studios to reach a new collective bargaining agreement with the Writers Guild of America. And if that doesn't happen, the writers are prepared to strike for the first time in a decade and a half, effectively shutting down production of most television and movies. You're probably not going to get the context you need about this story from the corporate media, so we brought on Colby Day, a WGA screenwriter who you might actually remember from episode 75, Gamora, I Hardly Knew Her. Uh, We talked for about 40 minutes about what the union provides for its members, how things got to where they are now, and why he and his fellow union members are willing to fight for a share of what is rightfully theirs. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, Colby. Happy to have you on. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Um, It's under uh, strange circumstances, but excited to talk about it. Yeah, awesome. Um, So I guess first question, just to kind of set the table here, what is the WGA? Uh, Who do they represent? How do they do it? All right. We're starting at the beginning, which is good. Um, The WGA stands for the Writers Guild of America, and uh, the Writers Guild represents uh, all the TV writers out there, all the feature film writers out there, and that has slowly expanded into some of the new media stuff to include, you know, um, online newsrooms, um, writers for things like Hearst Magazine Online, stuff like that. Like, it, it continues to expand. The original purview was always film and TV writers. So when when we talk about like being a WGA member, what does that entail and what benefits do you get by being a member? Yeah, so being in the WGA basically means that you've done a certain amount of work at a scale, at a professional scale that qualifies you to become a member of a union. Uh, it's sort of the equivalent of joining any other trade union. You know, you have to work a certain number of uh, credits, basically, to join the union. Um, once you join, you are part of, you know, the minimum payments for projects. You're obligated to be paid a certain amount for your work. Um, and you qualify for the WGA's pension as well as their health care. Um, and in Hollywood in particular, uh, the Writers Guild and the SAG Healthcare are like a big deal. <laughs> That's a big part of every right. negotiation is just trying to ensure that these people can, you know, keep their health care and also keep their pensions eventually. And so on the other side of the table from the WGA, we have the uh, AMPTP. Yes. Uh, can you tell me about them, what their deal is? how they operate uh yeah so the amptp i always get it wrong i believe it's the american uh uh motion picture and television producers is what it stands for okay um but it's basically a consortium of all the production companies that exist out there um who do produce work for film and television and so these are all the companies that have sort of agreed to um be signatories with the guild, which means they're allowed to employ guild members, and they are obligated to pay guild members based on the minimums that the guild has set forth. It's basically every producer out there who uh, works with the union is part of, or in some way represented by this consortium of producers. Got it. So these are are collectively bargained agreements between the WGA and the AMPTP, and uh, how, how do these contracts work? Uh, how, how are they negotiated? Uh, how are they enforced? Uh, what does, 
you know, working on a contract gig sort of get you? What does it guarantee? Yeah, um, they're super long, but basically the agreements are um, uh, stand for three years at a time. And then every three years, Hollywood kind of grinds to this point of like, wait, we need to sort of either renegotiate our deal and try to improve it or just ratify the deal for another three years. Um, but essentially what the deal is, is, you know, if you're going to hire someone who's within the union, they need to be paid a certain amount for their work based on whether it's a half hour show or an hour show or a movie. Sure. There are just this whole table that are sort of like the schedule of minimums is what it's called as far as like what it means to pay someone who's within the union. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, part of what your payment is, is the, uh, the, the producers are required to make a contribution as part of your payment to the pension and health care fund for the WGA. Sure. So any work that any union member gets, they're paying dues on what they've earned, and the producers are paying a small fee back into the pension and health care fund. So it's all just to keep the guild running, to keep the union running, and to keep these kinds of like health insurance and pension and, and you know, just basic quality of life stuff available for union members. So in terms of like what, what those numbers look like, I guess, what sorts of uh, salaries or, or, or payments or whatever can uh, Guild writers expect to make on an average production? It is a wildly varying range as far as like what you're okay. able to earn on a specific production. Um, but there is what is called sort of the schedule of minimums, and it's actually something anyone can look up and you can check for yourself. Right. Um, that sort of basically uh, breaks down, you know, if you are writing an original screenplay, here is what the low end of that salary would look like versus the high end of that salary would look like. And the low is based on, you know, a smaller budgeted film and the high is based on a larger budgeted film. So looking at the period from uh, 2020 to 2021, I literally just pulled it up. Yeah. The entire deal for a WGA minimum screenplay is about $77,000, which is a lot of money. But you have to take into account, like, it takes about a year to write a movie. Right. It takes about a year to get a movie negotiated. It takes another year to get a movie made. So you're really kind of banking on, like, okay, well, one movie is a livable salary within the, the ecosystem that is, like, if you lived in L.A., um, but it's pretty rare to write and sell a movie, period. So these minimums are in place to just try to guarantee that, like, if you are working on a television show, if you're working in a movies, um, you can eke out a livable situation. Right. Well, and I know, too, that, you know, there are also minimums for if you are in a room on a weekly basis or something like that. But that minimum, that weekly minimum doesn't mean that you are making 52 times that in a given year. Those are the <laughs> weeks that you're actually working, right? Yes. So, you know, if you look at like what the minimum is for a week, uh, I'm trying to find it. I, this is a very long document, but those minimums are based on weekly employment. And so for television writers in particular, part of what's going on right now is episodes of TV have gotten fewer and fewer. And the gap between seasons of shows have gotten longer and longer. Right. And so what you're stuck with is you have a system where you used to write for 26 weeks out of the year on a TV show, and now you write for maybe 14. 
Um, and in between those 14, you used to wait maybe nine months to know if your show was coming back. And now you're waiting a year, 18 months, two years, where you don't know if you're going to be employed again. And so the gap between when you get paid and when you might next get paid for the thing is just getting longer and longer and longer. And the amount of actual time you're working is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Right. Well, and, and I know, too, that um, one of the big sort of things that's a piece of contention this time around is that there's this idea of so-called mini rooms uh, where rather than having a full writer's room, it's like a mini room. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means? Yeah. A mini room is basically the, um, the, the like Hollywood equivalent of like, can we Uberify this economy a little bit? <laughs> like, sure, sure. can we, before we decide whether to make a show, hire six or seven writers instead of 10 to 12 writers and can we ask them to work for a few weeks at a time instead of for the entire run of a show and can we use that time to get them to crack what would this what the season would look like sure and so you're working with fewer people and you're working for a shorter period of time to kind of try to vet is this or isn't this a viable show? But, but what ends up happening in these mini rooms, you know, th they come from a place of wanting to know more about the show and wanting the show to be better. But what it ends up being for, for workers is you're working less time. You're not guaranteed uh, fees on any scripts because you don't know if the show's even being made. And um, you're trying to scramble together a career that's sustainable of these different mini rooms rather than actually working on a show that's in production. So it, it's hurting writers in that you're earning less money, you're earning less money for less time. Right. And if the show then goes into production, you aren't actually around anymore. You may have found another job. And right. so the studio is going into production on a show without the writers present sometimes. And that's another thing where it's just like, okay, well, now nobody's learning how to write a show. Right, <laughs> and right. And nobody actually is ga gaining the experience needed to kind of like build a career. You kind of are just moving from mini room to mini room to mini room. Well, I know that a lot of young writers um, who, who sort of have come up in, in writing rooms talk about how valuable that experience is like you get started as just like a writer you're you're fresh out of school whatever uh you 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 move to hollywood you find yourself in a room the first thing you write is like hey this could actually never be produced um and here's Absolutely. why and you need the mentorship of a room to help you get to the point of being able to understand how to actually sh uh, write a, a, a viable script for shooting, right? Yes. I mean, especially with TV, the, the ecosystem of TV is really a writer-driven ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so um, part of what you're learning is how do you write something that you can actually make? You know, if you write a beautiful script, but it has uh, 40 different locations, uh, that's not very viable for like a 60-minute right. show that just like is economically bad. So part of it is learning how do you make a show that actually works, that you can actually shoot within a two-week time frame, because that's how long you have to shoot an episode. Sure. And also learning how do you produce a show, because writers are often, as you move up the ranks, also the producers on television shows. Right, right. And so if you don't learn the skills of being a producer, which you would not learn from being in a mini room, because all you're doing in the room is writing... Um, you're missing out on like the valuable second, third, fourth steps of your career. And so you kind of get stuck in this ecosystem where 
you aren't really qualified to move ahead, even though you should be qualified to move ahead at this point. Well, and I know, too, there have been some examples of this not too long ago. I mean, there was that fucking uh, show on HBO, the one with The weekend, where the creator of that show was kind of like almost forced out of her own show. Like the studios are taking advantage of this relative inexperience to then point to these writers and be like, you can't do it. So we're going to bring our guy in instead. Right. Yes. A big part of this is kind of um, separating. I mean, if you get into real like uh, Marxian politics of like, we're separating the labor right. from the fruits of labor, right? <laughs> right? Like <laughs> the thing that you do, we want to get as much space between that and the actual product as possible. And um, what it what it means for workers is they, they don't actually see how the product gets put together. Sure. And it gives the companies... Um, more control than ever before as far as who they want, how they want it done. And, um, you know, I think anytime you can keep people from learning what they're worth, uh, you can extract more value from them. Absolutely. And that's a big part of what is, you know, the issue right now in Hollywood is we, we just have a system that's no longer sustainable for workers and is, is way too advantageous to to the corporate interests. Absolutely. I, that, that certainly mirrors a lot of other industries. I mean, my yeah. primary frame of reference is in live theater. A lot of things you were talking about with like these heavily consolidated uh, rooms, you know, shorter uh, shooting schedules, shorter writing schedules, all of that mirrors everything that's going on in, in live theater as well. You know, uh, with Broadway touring contracts and how they're now tearing it out uh, across a whole bunch of different levels to still maintain what is technically a union contract, but pay people as little as possible. Um, all of these are things that I, I'm sure are tactics that are being mirrored on the, the, the writer side of things in Hollywood as well, right? It's all the same fight. You know, we, we have all these companies at the end of the day are owned by some of the largest corporations, the wealthiest corporations to ever exist. Right. And their position is to extract as much value as humanly possible from the things they produce. Um, the reason you have unions, the reason you have like organized labor is to try to maintain a livable situation for employees. Yes. Um, I know that people can look at Hollywood and look at writers particularly as sort of like a gilded ivory tower class within the system. And uh, there are certainly writers where that is true. But overall, to write for TV, to write for film is like a pretty working class existence. Absolutely. <laughs> and you are simply trying to use your position as an organized body of people to, to try to build some guardrails for these enormous corporations um, because they don't care. They're there to earn money, and they're there to extract as much value as they can, and that's it. And I think on the, the labor side of that equation, you know, somebody who is— let's say Adam McKay, right? He's going to have no trouble getting something produced and getting paid a good amount of money because, you know, studios like him and he has a track record and that's nothing against Adam McKay. But the whole point of, you know, the union is that it protects Adam McKay as much as it pr protects some kid who just <laughs> graduated from NYU and has moved to Hollywood and is, you know, getting their feet wet on the scene, right? Yes. It's designed to, uh, you know, a union is designed to protect all its members and um, these minimums are in place to just ensure that people can have a livable existence within a business that is continuing to become harder and harder to sustain yourself in. Sure. Um, 
a lot of what's coming up in this round of negotiations is stuff that could and would have been addressed in 2020, yes. which was the previous year of negotiations. Um, but there was a global pandemic, and so nobody wanted to shut down a business that was already seemed like incredibly tenuous. Right. Um, but this is stuff that's long brewing, and it, it's not any different from any labor fight out there right now. It's that these corporations have too much power. Right. Well, and, and I'd love to get to talking about some of those specifics. Like, obviously, you yourself are not on the bargaining committee. If you were, you would be at the table right now rather than talking to me. Um, <laughs> but a lot of this finds its background going all the way back to 2007 and the strike that happened back then. Yes. Um, where there was a strike authorization vote going into it and um, the, the studio, studios didn't budge. And so the writers did, in fact, strike. And that strike lasted for 100 days. And uh, we saw a lot of pretty dramatic effects. You know, it, evening and variety shows were done for a very long time. Uh, soap operas, daytime soaps and other daytime shows brought in a bunch of scabs. Um, there was a lot more unscripted and reality content. That was why you got that string of absolutely insane reality shows in the late 2000s. Um, and some truly great series uh, had shortened series or, or, or shortened seasons, rather, or had to end up getting canceled outright. Um, anybody who knows the show Pushing Daisies, rest in peace. Uh, that was oh, R.I.P. R.I.P. That was one of the big casualties of that strike. But as I recall, a big piece of that 2007 strike was about new media. And so they yes. sort of came to a tentative agreement of like, oh, yeah, we'll get to it eventually, but they've just kind of been kicking that can on down the road, right? Yeah, the 2007-2008 fight was over the idea of could and should we pay writers at all for stuff that we put on the internet. And sure. <laughs> um, things have changed since 2007 and 2008, and um, the agreement that was reached back then was, well, let's start to pay writers something for this new media, which is all streaming, falls under new media, um, but it's not as valuable as theatrical. It's not as valuable as broadcast television. Right. So let's let's set the minimums at a far lower rate than we've set the minimums for those other mediums. And it's fair to say at that point that streaming then is not what it is now. Like, we, I, I think anybody who all. was looking at the future knew that it was going to get big. But honestly, even in 2008, I don't think anybody would have thought that Netflix, for instance, could be what it is now. I remember when they stopped sending out DVDs or when they when they, when you had to pay extra for the DVDs, rather, everyone was like, what? A streaming network? I don't know if I can do this. Uh, and then House of Cards came along and changed everything. Yes. At the time, this was all, you know, every contract fight is about trying to correct mistakes made previously right. and to try to protect some vision of what the future might hold for the industry. Um, in 2007, 2008, I, you know, I think that people were aware that media might move online, but there was no awareness that it would become one of the primary driving forces of the entertainment business. Right. And I think the fight right now is to just consider the labor that people do. And it's not just writers. Writers are the first labor union who have to redo their negotiation and their contract. But right after the writers um, are the DGA, and right after the DGA are SAG. 
and it is everybody within the industry. And the DGA are the directors, SAG is the actors, respectively, for people who aren't aware. Yeah, exactly. And everyone collectively knows that it's not any easier to make a show for streaming. It's not any easier to make a movie for streaming. And the companies are profiting from these movies much more than they were in 2007 and 2008. So a big part of the fight is just saying, hey, guys, we know that this is an incredibly profitable business for you all as companies. And the people who create this material deserve to be compensated for the work they do. So at this time, uh, when it comes to a streaming show, something that's de- being developed exclusively for streaming, right? Yes. Um, is it what is the situation of those rights uh, in the contract compared to let's say your standard issue like HBO show how do those compare it is um a vastly different number um it really depends on the size of the streamer the size of the network it it really does start to get really granular as to how the numbers are calculated but but the numbers are wildly different and um when you look at uh, the actual viewership for all these things, Mm -hmm. they're not wildly different. Right. And so there's a huge disconnect between the number of people viewing something that is on television versus the number of people viewing something online the the same night. And yet uh, the pay structure for those two things is, is there's a huge chasm between the two. And so it's really about like closing the gap of, uh, you know, the residual, the, the model of how you pay someone for something that people watch uh, needs to reflect the fact that people are watching it. Can you talk a little bit more about like residuals, what that means, what the residual structure looks like and, and what the writers are trying to get in this current round of negotiations? Yeah, absolutely. So so for the uninitiated, what residuals are basically when you write something, you are paid upfront for your services. And then you are paid what are called residuals for the future exploitation of that work in any medium. So if you write a movie and it comes out theatrically, and then a year from now it's on TNT and you can watch it on on television with commercials, uh, the studio is obligated to pay residuals, which are just, hey, we've earned more money from this movie, so we owe you some of that money back as payment. the residuals for you know uh, films that are shown on TV are something that the Writers Guild fought for back in the you know 1950s, 1960s, sure. and and won the rights to. And that and it, that was a similar paradigm shift at the time. Movies yes. on TV? What? What are the odds? Right, it, they could never happen. And then it started to happen, and right. you have to kind of recalibrate. Okay, well, how do we compensate people fairly for the fact that we're earning money from this? Um, we're in the same boat today, which is that movies that used to only come out in theaters and TV shows that only used to be available on TV are all available online. Mm -hmm. And these companies are earning a lot of money from that stuff. And the requirement that they have to pay residuals is much, much, much lower than it is if they were paying you the residuals for something that was on television. Um, The problem with that is these companies are earning much, much, much more than they ever used to on all this streaming media. So there's just this vast chasm of of a gap between what they're earning from streaming and what they're actually paying towards the people who make it. And it's not just the writers, it's the actors, it's the directors, it's everybody down the line is um, sort of disconnected from the incentive to make something good. Sure. Because it doesn't matter how many people watch it. The residuals you're going to earn on it are 
virtually non-existent. Yeah, it's just content, to, right? Yeah, relative to a successful TV show that aired on TV in say the 1990s. So, like, I'm seeing, for instance, and I'm looking at like the rate table that currently exists for WGA contracts. Yes. And the example they have here is for a one-hour episode of a Netflix show, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it says basically the number that you end up getting after they do their calculations on this residual is thirteen thousand four hundred seventy-three dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, what? Help me put that number in context. Like, how would that compare to, say, a one-hour episode of an HBO show? Overall, these numbers are basically uh, things that you would have to say you would earn four to five times as much from the other the other sources of media. Really? Like, it's, um, it's just an astonishing gap in terms of what your payment is. And it, uh, it gets very complicated because the residuals are calculated annually. And so it's based on right. a percentage of a percentage of a and percentage. And they decay over time based they on how far you are. From the, yeah. So it's really hard to do, like, one-to-one comparisons. But you're looking at a gap of, like, four to five times to start out with. And then that gap <laughs> getting broader and broader. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So not hard to see then why uh, the the guild is pushing very hard to basically have a completely new structure set up. But this is very far away from how things have been. And so I know the studios are digging their heels in as well, right? Yes. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think what, what the Writers Guild is asking for amounts to essentially 2% of uh, what these corporate corporations annual profits are sure it's not a crazy amount and it is actually the amount that if you budget a film uh, most producers would say budget around one and a half to two percent of the budget for just your writer's fees sure it's sort of an industry standard um so it, it is a big ask in terms of shifting the paradigm of the business but, but it is not a big ask in terms of like what used to be and always has been the standard for how you value the writing of a project. Um, but the AMPTP has sort of uh, stuck their heels in. We are recording this on the day when the, we will all be deciding will there or won't there be a deal. Right. Um, and will there or won't there be a writer's strike. Um, and it is fully within the power of the AMPTP to make a proposal that the Writers Guild accepts. Um, they may not. We'll see. Right. And also, you know, that is, <laughs> there's a lot of people who have the tendency to frame this as, well, you know, those writers just aren't letting the production continue. But you could just as easily make the argument from the other perspective. And when you consider that, like, Amazon and Netflix have seen this explosive growth in share price, profitability, and uh, investor value delivered over the course of the past decade and a half, which is that exact same period since the last strike. I mean, that, that I would argue is a more accurate way of looking at it. Well, feature writers are earning, when you adjust for inflation, about 14% today less than they were earning five years ago. Sure. TV writers are earning uh, about 23% less than they were five years ago. Wow. Um, And the streaming businesses are earning uh, about $28 billion a year in profit, and they're earning about $200 billion a year in revenue. And so the thing that writers are asking for is pay us livable wages. It's not crazy. 
Um, <laughs> and, and I think that the framing of the argument as this being something that the writers are responsible for is um, uh, a little bit simplistic as far as like how labor negotiations work. Right. Actually, most of the power belongs in the hands of the corporation. And as workers, we're kind of just trying to take some modicum of power back right. and just ask for like fair, reasonable wages for the work we do and the work that they continue to exploit. I can see how that decrease in real wages when adjusted for inflation, I can see how that could happen. I mean, we used that Netflix uh, example just a little earlier, but that's Netflix. And Netflix is one of the biggest ones. You want to talk about a show on one of the small streaming networks? You want to talk about something that's going up on... I don't know, like Roku channel. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's just not it's not even real money at that point. The the task of being a, a writer is a very very tenuous career, mm -hmm. and so the the responsibility of having a, a labor union for that kind of work is to try to make that career survivable. There are, of course, people who are doing exceptionally well. There are exceptions to the rule. However, there are thousands of members of this guild who are working job to job, just like everybody else within the entertainment industry. It is not a glamorous job. <laughs> you are working long hours. You are working for very little. And the way that these contracts have been um, utilized over the last few years is to try to push the value of everything down. Right. And we, we live in a world where everything is more expensive than it ever was before. And as workers, we're all just trying to find a way to, like, make livable wages. Absolutely. And, and, and too, like, that's the point of a for-profit corporation is to extract as much surplus value as possible. Like, the, <laughs> yes. a, a, a union is a necessary countermeasure to that thing. You um, actually do need both forces in, in the current economic model we exist in, which right. is that, that companies extract as much as they can. You need a counterbalance to that, which is, no, 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 there is a limit to how much you can extract before this becomes unsustainable. Right. So let's talk now about the potential impending strike. The, the current contract expires tonight at 11.59 p.m., um, a couple weeks ago, the WGA membership voted to authorize a strike uh, if needed. 97.85% of ballots were in favor of that. So um, the writers are not backing down here, to say the least. Um, so I guess my question for you is, what would the effect of a strike this time around look like on the current media landscape? Because... What the networks are doing, what the producers are doing, what the studios are doing, you know, it is a very different environment now from the last time that a strike happened. We do live in a different uh, media landscape than we did in 2007. So um, the, the immediate impacts that, that consumers will feel um, remain the same. Your late night talk shows are going to be done immediately. No new writing. So um, everyone who works on uh, any of the late night shows is a writer. They're members of the Writers Guild. Those shows won't have writers anymore. So those are the first things where you'll see the impact. Um, daily soaps are where you'd see the impact. Um, and then you start to get to things like scripted television, which is you know usually shot months in advance. Um, those rooms that are currently in production are stopping now. You know if a strike went into effect. Right. Um, but there is a lot of media out there. There's more media than ever before. And so I think that the effects day to day on the consumer, the person who's just trying to watch television and movies, 
um, it won't be as dramatically felt. I really don't think so. Sure. Um, and I think that that puts workers in a complicated position in which uh, a strike action will be a little bit less noticeable, um, uh, which is complicated. Um, but that's the, the ecosystem we have. Um, films will stop production. TV shows will stop production. Um, anybody who's developing projects right now, that's going to stop. But um, the bigger the project, the longer the timeline for it. And so the effects of all that stuff are really only going to be felt in like day-to-day programming right now. Right. And I think it's an important note as well that the way that production schedules work, as you were saying, is like things that happen right now you're really mostly only going to feel their effects a great deal later on down the road. You know, the shows that uh, had to, in 2007-08, had to cancel half of their season, they didn't have to do that until later on because it ended up being a 100-day strike. And earlier on, there was still some hope, well, maybe we can just get everybody back in the room after, you know, a week or two and everything will be fine. Um, there's no guarantee, of course, that, that that will happen. It didn't happen last time, and there's no guarantee it'll happen this time either, right? Yeah, there's there's no way of knowing how long a strike would last, and there's no way of knowing today what the impact will be on projects that are currently in production. You know, if you are running a television show that's shooting right now, um, you're stressed because you might have to stop tonight at midnight. Right. Um, if you're about to start shooting a movie, you're worried because you might not be able to start shooting the movie. But these things are all scheduled to be released six months, nine months, 12 months from now. And so the actual effect in the moment to viewers is going to be television first uh, and then slowly film and series not returning on time, things being pushed, things being delayed, um, stuff like that. And the other thing that's worth noting too is that I've seen that the streaming platforms, one of the things they've been doing in advance is they've just been acquiring a lot of international content and like stuff that wasn't produced domestically. But again, like that can only tide you over for a certain period of time. And I I agree that like the impact will not be as dramatically and immediately felt, but still at some point people are going to look at what's available and be like, hey, I'd like to actually watch something that is new and good and not from Australia, maybe? <laughs> like, there will be impact, you know. Um, there are a lot of shows that uh, m- m- will be hurt by this. There are a lot of movies that will be hurt by this. The last writer's strike happened as they were shooting uh, Quantum of Solace, the James Bond movie, and that came out and was a mess because right. they had to stop the movie halfway through. Which a lot of people don't know. They don't, they're just like, wait, why is this movie so weird? Well, it turns out, there wasn't a writer to actually put the damn thing together. No. Uh, if you read interviews with Daniel Craig, he was like, we didn't have a script for lots of it. And I was just trying to figure out what should happen next. <laughs> so right. that kind of stuff will be going on. You know, things that are in production right now, if pencils go down, um, that means that writers are not allowed to work on the film. However, the Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild are still technically required to fulfill their contracts. Sure. So there are things that are happening right now that I think will really be impacted negatively by a strike um, as far as the quality of the output, simply because nobody's allowed to write right now. So I guess the last thing that I kind of wanted to wrap up with here is we talk about we talk a lot about narratives on our show <laughs> in the way that narratives kind of tend to shape reality. And if the strike happens, we're going to start hearing a pretty standard set of talking points pretty quickly. Uh, from the networks, from the studios. Uh, They're already making enough money, right? 
uh, we're all tightening the belt out here. It's it's. Did you see our? We had to lay off people. We're all tightening the belt. Why should why should the writers be exempt from this? Um, our current agreements are so fair. They've been fair for so long. Um, for our listeners who you know hear that shit, which they will if there's a strike, what should they be keeping in mind, concretely, that is clearly counter to these arguments? Writers want to work. Everybody who works in film and television want to work. What writers are asking for right now is a small increase in the amount that we are paid for new media, which does not currently equal what we're paid for other things. New media is becoming the most profitable sector of these giant corporations, giant coffers, and they're not paying the people who make it fairly. Um, if there is a work stoppage come tonight, it's because these companies are not willing to pay their employees fair wages. It is that simple. The actual demands that the WGA are making right now would equate to around $600 million. That sounds like a lot of money. However, these companies are making $28 billion a year in profits. And we're asking for 2% of it. And if you wanted to put that in the context of, you know, the recent mergers and acquisitions and stuff like that going on, look at the merger between Warner and Discovery, for instance, like all of these moves have been with the intention of squeezing out every single last drop of profit while being able to find more and more excuses and loopholes so that they don't have to pay their labor fairly. The reason these companies are struggling financially is because their models are based on exponential growth forever. That's not possible. Right. (laughs) So to deny the people who make the product that you sell and that you earn money from, to deny those people a livable wage is unconscionable. It really is. When you really think about it, the fact that you have writers showing up to accept a WGA award for best comedy series with a negative bank account is insane. And something has to break in the system. It just doesn't work. And so all the Writers Guild is asking is, will you corporations treat your employees fairly? Will you pay us equitably? And will you continue to pay us for the work we provide for you that you continue to earn more and more money for? And that is a fight for the writers, yes, personally, I would like that. But that is also a fight for the screen actors. That's also a fight for the directors. And it's also a fight for everyone who makes these things. There is a value to the work that we're making, and it needs to be recognized as something that has value. And and that's true of everybody making these things. None of us want to stop working. We all hope that the producers come to an agreement with the Guild. They may not. And if they don't, I think it's up to us all to recognize that it is only through collective action that we can actually stop giant corporations from squeezing every iota out of us. What can our listeners do uh, to support the WGA in this labor action uh, and just in general if they want to be following along with what's going on here? You can follow the Writers Guild on social media. It's WGA East. It's WGA West. They are both the Writers Guild. 
Um, there's also a hashtag that is do the right W R I T E. Oh, I see what you did there. (laughs) Um, that people are using on social media. Um, and there, if there is a strike, which may be true come this evening as we're recording, um, there will be picketers in front of every production office in LA and New York. So you are welcome to come. You're welcome to be there in solidarity. You're welcome to drive by and honk your horn. Um, and, uh, just talk about it on social media. That's honestly where these companies are listening. That's honestly where they're trying to get uh, information and take the temperature of the uh, of the actual public and um, just spreading awareness that this is not a fight from people in an ivory tower. This is a fight from people who are trying to pay their rent. And um, that's it. You know, we're just trying to make a living. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Colby. And uh, yeah, go out there, listeners. Let your voices be heard, support the writers, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Bye.